morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bibles? Good. Ephesians chapter 2 is where you need to go. We're going to get right, right to work today. We've got a lot to do this morning. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a little while. And uh, man, couldn't fit better with the text today. And I'm excited about what is to come this morning. Uh, as you make your way to Ephesians chapter 2, I want to remind you that last week what we saw was a transition from the vertical element of the gospel about how we are raised from the dead, reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We saw that vertical element of the gospel. Paul's making transition from that to the horizontal element of the gospel where we are reconciled not only to God, but we are reconciled to one another. We are brought together as one family, you'll see in the text today, as one nation, as one building in Christ. We are brought together. We're going to talk about that uh, horizontal element today in the text. I told you last week, like we told you in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, it is important that we remember who we were, not to the point that it paralyzes us and we live in the past and the sins of the past and the old man, but that we remember who we used to be so that we can appreciate who we've been made to be, so that we can appreciate the change that God has brought to us. We should rejoice in the past tense of all of that. We, have, we should rejoice that we have been made new. We should celebrate that we haven't done that for ourselves. Someone else hasn't done that for us. God has made us new. He has brought the change and so we rejoice in it. And we recognize that redemption is available only in Christ, right? Only in Christ is redemption available, and it is available to all who will believe in him, who will trust in him and repent of their sins. That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how this horizontal relationship amongst believers from different backgrounds work together. And then we're going to have this great exercise in that. We're going to have this great exercise where we will serve we will serve one another the elements of the Lord's Supper. We will look at each other in the eye and hand the bread and hand the cup because it is that symbol of the gospel, right? It is that gospel that brings us together. It's why we're together in this room today. It's why we're a family. It's why we're a whole new race of people because Jesus has come, his body has been broken, his blood has been poured out, and he has saved us, right? And so we're going to share that with one another this morning. I'm not going to serve you. The deacons aren't necessarily going to serve you. You're going to serve each other as an act of unity, and it'll be a beautiful thing. So check it out in the text, chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13 and get through verse 22 today. This is what God says through the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus and to us today. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful today uh, for the gospel. 
for good news of grace and mercy and peace and reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness of sins and resurrection to new life. We are so thankful for good news today, for a gospel that reconciles us to you, for a gospel that reconciles us to each other. God, I pray that we will enjoy and celebrate and cherish both parts of that reconciliation in this place today, that we who belong to you will rejoice in the mercy and grace and forgiveness that we've been shown, that we will rejoice in the unity that you have brought to us as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I pray that you'd help us to savor all of this today. And God, we also pray for folks who are in this room who, who don't know about that reconciliation, who don't know about forgiveness, who don't know about eternal life. Pray that you come to them today and you make it known to them. God, reveal in a way that only you can the reality of their sin, the justice of your judgment against them because of their sin, the glory of your provision for them in your own son on the cross. God, open their eyes, open their hearts to see that Jesus died for them as their substitute in their place, took what they deserve. And God, I pray that the response of men and women and boys and girls to what you speak to their hearts today will be repentance of sins, turning away from sin and turning towards you, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust and dependence on his work for salvation. God, I pray that, that you will do your work of reconciliation today, vertically and horizontally in this place, all for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray. I think verse 13 is fantastic. That's why we're going to preach it twice, right? This is where we ended last week. It's where we'll start this week. I think it's beautiful that Paul says, but now, because that seems to be the pattern. It seems to be the rhythm of this letter. This is who you were, but now everything has changed. That seems to be the pattern. That seems to be the rhythm of our lives, right? This is who I was. This is who I used to be, but now everything has changed. As I was studying this text this week, I was reminded of the cardboard testimonies. You've seen that a couple times here, right? Somebody comes out and on one side of a piece of cardboard, it talks about their sin and their struggles and the darkness. And then in a moment, they flip it over, right? To show the deliverance and the victory and the redemption that God has brought to their lives. How many of you have seen that? That's awesome, isn't it? It's fantastic, and that's the way our testimonies go, right? This is who I was, ah, but now everything has changed, and we should celebrate that, right? And I hope you have that moment. I hope you have that moment in your life where you can say, but now, it's all different, right? But now, everything has changed, and that's what Paul is celebrating in these verses. Notice also that he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, right, in him everything has changed. And you need to understand that that's the only way you get to flip that cardboard around, right? We don't flip the cardboard around because we've toughened up and we've pulled our act together and we've got it all together. We turn that cardboard over to show the new life because Jesus has showed up and made a difference in us, right? That's what happened with Paul, right? He was walking, right, in his sin. He was walking toward Damascus to punish and persecute believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus showed up and changed him. And that's when everything changed for him, right? He would say, I used to be a zealous persecutor of the church. I used to be a troublemaker for the way. Oh, but now, but now I preach the gospel, but now I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation, right? But now everything has changed because of Jesus. Amen? 
only because of Jesus. We cannot change ourselves. Only he can change us so that we can flip that cardboard around. Notice what else he says in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That's a beautiful picture, right? What a joy, what an honor that those who were far off have now been brought near, invited into the presence of God. You know, scripture says that we're adopted into his family. You know, Scripture says that now, in Christ, we are able to cry out to Him, Abba, Father. We have this close relationship with Him where He is our Father and we are His sons. What a beautiful picture that is of being brought near. That's something revolutionary in the first century, right? God's people had never known that kind of nearness. Moses experienced it one time for just a brief moment, right? And his life was never the same. But now in Christ, we are invited near with boldness and with confidence. We go right into his presence and he invites us and expects us to come near to him. What a joy, what a privilege, what an honor. And we must never take that lightly. Even in this place, as we gather together as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ to enter into the presence of God, we must be very careful not to take that lightly, not to treat that flippantly, not to sing the kind of songs that we have sung this morning without recognizing we are in the presence of God, not to come in and hear his word and not recognize we have been drawn near, we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That may be the most important part of verse 13, by the blood of Jesus. We sing a song, Jason has sung this song before, his blood was not just blood of another spotless lamb, his blood perfect blood, right? Cleanse the sins of man. By the blood of Jesus, we are brought near only by his blood. The blood of bulls and goats and rams and pigeons could not do what the blood of Jesus has done once for all, right? The author of Hebrews says he made a sacrifice once for all and then sat down. Why did he sit down? Because his work was done. He didn't have to get up year after year like the high priest did and make a sacrifice over and over and over again. He made one sacrifice and sat down because that's all it took was his sacrifice. Amen? By the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. There's something really interesting going on in the language at the beginning of this verse. It places a huge emphasis on he. For he himself is our peace. It emphasizes that he is the one who has done this, that he is the one who is our peace. It's like that should be in all caps and in bold. He himself is our peace. You see, Jesus doesn't just make peace. Jesus doesn't just bring peace. Jesus doesn't just preach peace, as we'll see later on in the text. Jesus is our peace, right? If you take him out of the equation, what do you have left? Nothing, right? If you take Jesus out of all of this, you don't have any good news at all. And you certainly don't have any peace. He is our peace. Notice next what he says. He says, he himself is our peace who made both groups. Which groups? Who's he talking about there? Which two groups? Both groups. Jews and Gentiles, right? Is that all that he has made into one group? Just Jews and Gentiles? If you don't uh, classify yourself in one of those categories, you're not involved in this reconciliation that he's bringing? No, I think we can apply this to all kinds of different breakdowns, all kinds of different distinctions among men, men and women. In fact, Paul will apply this in a different book and later on in this book in a different way. Men and women have been brought together as one. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. Here we would say black and white, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. Every single division that, that separates us as men 
he has brought us together into one body in Christ Jesus, right? This is amazing, and this is such good news. He says, he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. You're going to see later on in this text that he says, he makes both of them into one new thing, one new man. He doesn't make Jews Gentiles, he doesn't make Gentiles Jews, he takes Jews and makes them Christians, he takes Gentiles and makes them Christians, he creates a third race of man, and we'll talk about the importance of identifying yourself in that third race and not those other races. Our most important identity is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes both groups and makes them into one, and look what he says next, this is so important. He says he made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. There's a lot going on here historically. In the temple, there were lots of divisions. There were lots of distinctions amongst people. And we see them, I'm going to work from the inside out. We talked about this a little bit last week. From the inside out, there is a division between God and his people in the Holy of Holies, right? God dwells in the Holy of Holies, and there's a very fancy curtain that separates the Holy of Holies where God dwells from the rest of people. And only one man once a year and only with blood was able to enter into that holy place, right, and be in the presence of God. And he did it with great fear and great trembling. And there was a division between God and his people. We know that that dividing wall, that barrier was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died, right? Opening up access to the Father for us through the veil that is the flesh of Christ. That's really good news. So that barrier is broken down in the death of Christ. But outside of that, there's a barrier even amongst God's people. Amongst God's people, there were certain places Jewish men could go that Jewish women couldn't go. And there were very clear signs that said women aren't supposed to go past this and only men can enter in here. And so even God's people were separated by gender. But we know that in Christ, God has brought us together into one family, right? He has, he has broken down that dividing wall. But I believe that the wall Paul is talking about here is outside of that. So not only do we have a division of God and his people, but a division amongst God's people, but then there's a division between God's people and the rest of the world, the Gentiles. In fact, this is very clearly seen in the archaeology of the temple. There were a few steps, and then there was a literal dividing wall. It wasn't very high, but there was a literal dividing wall, and then there were more steps, and the Jews couldn't go past that dividing wall. So there were, I mean, the Gentiles couldn't go past that dividing wall on into the temple. So there was a very clear distinction Jews on this side, Gentiles on this side, and all around the perimeter of that wall, it was written, if you go past this wall and you're a Gentile, your death is your fault, right? We will kill you because you're not supposed to go here and it'll be your fault. And we know about that dividing wall. Paul knew about that dividing wall. At one point, as he's traveling in Jerusalem, he has a man from Ephesus named Trophimus who's with him, and the Jews in Jerusalem accuse Paul of bringing Trophimus into the temple. He's a Gentile and shouldn't have gone there, and they accuse him of bringing him in, and they're ready to kill him and Trophimus, right? This is a big deal. This is a big deal that that barrier has been built. But what Paul says here is that in Christ, because of the gospel, that barrier has been broken down. The point of this entire text is all of these barriers. All of these things that separate us have been broken down because of Jesus Christ. He is bringing all these different things together into one thing. And he is bringing reconciliation not only vertically between us and the Father, but horizontally between us and each other. Look at how he says it in this, in this verse. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down 
literally broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Verse 15 says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. This is the most complicated verse of all that we're going to look at today. It's the most complicated verse, and I want you to track with it so that you understand what's going on here. First, Paul says that he, that he abolished in his flesh the enmity. That's the most important verbal phrase in this verse, that he abolished the enmity, right? The bitterness, the hostility, the animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles. It is that that Jesus is breaking down, all right? And what he says next is going to qualify what it looks like for him to break down that enmity, that barrier and that enmity. And so we need to talk about what it is that brought about the animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And what he says in the next phrase is that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So basically what Paul says is that the thing that caused the enmity was not culture, it was not tradition, it was the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In other words, he's saying it is the law that has brought about this bitterness and this separation and this animosity between Jews and Gentiles. Now that gets really interesting and that gets really difficult to interpret because it seems like we could make a couple of mistakes in this verse. The first mistake we could make is that we could see Paul contradicting what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, right? That he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. That's what Jesus says, right? I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. But here Paul says Jesus came to abolish the law, right? And so we could say, oh, see, there's a contradiction in the scripture and we just need to throw the whole thing out, which is good logic, by the way. If there is a contradiction in scripture, a legitimate contradiction in scripture, we would need to throw it all out. Because if we can't trust it to uh, validate itself, we can't trust it at all. But hear me clearly, there are no contradictions in the scriptures. Baptist folks, I just said, there are no contradictions in the scriptures, right? You can trust all of it, right? There is complete consistency in this book, and you can trust all of it. And you, as a Baptist, need to be really excited about that, okay? So we could see this and say, oh, there's a contradiction with Jesus and Paul, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and what Paul says here. There's also a danger in this text that we could trend toward a heresy called antinomianism. Antinomianism means no law, right? Against the law. Basically, if we read this verse out of its context, Paul says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Right? Basically, if we don't understand anything else that's written in Scripture, Paul says he destroyed the law. Jesus came and he destroyed the law and did away with the law. And it doesn't matter anymore what you do or how you live or where you go or what you say. doesn't matter anymore because the law is gone. Is that a good place to live? No, I don't think that's a good place to live, especially if you read the rest of the Bible. Even the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says no. Let me tell you that what the law says, don't commit adultery. But I'm going to tell you that if you've looked on a woman with lust in your heart, for, you've already committed adultery, right? The law says don't kill. But I'm going to tell you if you've hated a brother, you've committed murder, right? Jesus doesn't do away with the law. He enforces the law on an entirely different level than they were aware of before. Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this when Paul says that Jesus abolished the law of ordinances in commandments? Well, I think the best way to understand this and to make sense of it all is to see that there are two parts of the law. There have always been two parts of the law. 
there has been a moral part of the law, right? A moral part of the law that says this is what God expects of us in how we live. Things like don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, right? Make retribution if it's your fault. Those kind of things are moral laws, and those laws apply to everyone on the planet, right? In fact, Paul will argue that God has written that on the hearts of even the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles, God has written those parts of the law on their hearts. That is part of what is general revelation amongst all man, okay? You with me on this? So there's a moral part of the law, but there's also a ceremonial part of the law. When we read about the ceremonial law, we think of things like the temple. The temple is an, is an aspect of the ceremonial law. The sacrificial system is part of the ceremonial law. Dietary laws are part of the ceremonial law. Uh, let's see. Can you name some more? The priesthood is part of the ceremonial law. Holidays and feasts are part of the ceremonial part of the law. And what the ceremonial law does is it basically distinguishes Jews from everyone else, Israelites from everyone else, because those laws of Passovers and Sabbaths and feasts and sacrifices, God doesn't apply those things to all the nations. Rather, he applies that to his people specifically to distinguish them from the rest of the group. And that distinction between the Jews and the rest of the world is what has bred the hostility between Jews and the rest of the world in the first century. Are you with me? Really? Two parts of the law, a moral law and a ceremonial law. I believe that what this text is saying is that it is that ceremonial law. I think when we read all of the scripture together, it is that ceremonial law that has been set aside because it is that ceremonial law that has bred the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. We've got to be very careful not to assume that we set aside the moral aspect of the law as well. All right, That is in place, not as a means of salvation, hear me clearly. The moral law is not in place any longer as a means of salvation. I don't believe it ever was, but certainly not now. It's not as if you can be saved by keeping the moral law, okay? But it still serves as a revelation of God's righteousness, of God's holiness, and as a direction for our lives, instruction about how we should live in relationship with each other. Is this clear? So when Paul says in verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In other words, when Jesus came, when Jesus came, he did away with all of that ceremonial law because all of that ceremonial law pointed to him, right? When we think about the priesthood, who fulfills the priesthood? Jesus fulfills the priesthood, right? He's the ultimate, great, superior high priest. When we think about the sacrificial system, who fulfills all of that? Jesus does. He's the once for all superior sacrifice. When we think about the temple, who fulfills all of the symbolism of the temple? Jesus does, right? He fulfills all of that. Now let me ask you this. If a greater realization of all of those old things has come, is there any reason to keep the old things? Is there any reason any longer to keep the Passover? No! Because we no longer celebrate blood that was put on doorposts. We no longer celebrate a lamb that was slain. We no longer celebrate a deliverance out of Egypt. We celebrate the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. We celebrate his blood, not the blood of those other lambs. We celebrate deliverance from sin, not deliverance from Egypt. He has fulfilled all of those things and therefore abolished the old things and, and, and given us the greater, fuller, real meaning of those things. Does this make sense to you? It is 
those things that has caused the enmity between Jews and Gentiles, and it is those things that Jesus has broken down and done away with, not the moral aspect of the law. You can't, you can't, read, can't read the New Testament and think that Jesus has done away with the moral aspect of the law, not as a means of salvation, but as direction for our lives, okay? Whew. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Look at this. This is beautiful. So that, here's the purpose of why he destroyed that enmity. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. I love this. This is the escalation of what we saw earlier. Jesus doesn't make Gentiles Jewish. Right? Peter, Peter and Paul established that. I was just reading that last week. Remember when Peter has his vision? He has a vision of the sheet that's coming down, and then he eventually goes to visit Cornelius. This is countercultural. He should not have done that. But God says, don't call what I have made clean, unclean. He says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. Those things are done away with. I'm building a whole new man here. Not Jewish Christianity, not Gentile Christianity, not white Christianity or black Christianity or American Christianity and Chinese Christianity. No, I'm building one new man called Christians. With me on this? And we see that at the very end. At the very end, what we see gathered around the throne of God is myriads of myriads singing with one voice. Not myriads of voices, one voice. Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation singing with one voice and singing one song. Not myriads and myriads of songs, but one song because he is building one body, not multiple bodies. We've got to get this. We've got to get this. This will change the way we do church. This will change the way we do missions, right? That he's building one body, not a bunch of different bodies. He's building one body. He's making us into one new man in himself. This is what he says. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Peace, what a beautiful word. It is deeper than mere absence of hostility. It's not just a tense ceasefire. It is friendship. It is brotherhood. It is commitment. It is intimacy. That's what he is bringing between the two different groups. He's not just getting them in the room and, and, and asking them to get along for an hour or so. He's bringing them together as a family. He's bringing them together as a body. He's bringing them together as a nation. He's bringing them together as a new man. That's what we need here. That's what we need here. Not just, not just a ceasefire. Peace. Real, deep, profound peace. That's what he has established. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. I love this. I love this because what he does in that verse is he blends perfectly the vertical nature of reconciliation and the horizontal nature of reconciliation. Reconciliation might be my favorite word this month. Reconciliation, bringing together the most unlikely parties, bringing together people who are at enmity with each other. And there's no greater demonstration of enmity than between us and God when we are in our sins and between us and each other when we are in our sins. And God through Christ has brought us together with him. God in Christ is bringing us together as a body and he blends the two. Notice what he says. Notice what he says in this verse. He says, and might reconcile them both in one body to God. 
He doesn't reconcile Gentiles to God in one way, Jews to God in another way. He doesn't reconcile Americans to God in one way and Chinese people to God in another way. It's not the way it works. He doesn't reconcile white people to God one way and black people to God another way. It's not the way it works. He reconciles us both to God in one body, the same way. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. Jesus said it himself, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, right? No man, no matter what his background, no matter what his race, no matter what his location, no man comes to the Father except through Jesus. It says, might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. We are reconciled to God through the Christ together, and by it, that is the cross, having put to death the enmity. What enmity is he talking about there? What enmity did God put to death in the cross? All of it. God in the cross put to death all the enmity. The vertical enmity, the vertical pain, separation between us and him, put to death on the cross. The horizontal enmity, the disagreements and the disrespect and the hatred between us, he put that to death by the cross. The cross is the key to reconciliation. The cross is the only hope of reconciliation. And that's what we're going to celebrate in just a minute. We're going to celebrate the cross, reconciling us to God and to each other. This is what we hold in common. Not our co- not the color of our skin. Not the amount of money in our bank accounts. It is this that we celebrate. Look at the next verse. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. This is, this is speaking of Jesus coming and preaching. And we see this in his earthly ministry. When Jesus was on the earth, he wasn't just dealing with people from Jewish background. He would deal with all kinds of people. He would speak and minister to all kinds of people. We see that in his earthly ministry. But we also see it in his ministry now that he's gone. What we need to understand is that Jesus is still at work today preaching peace to the world, right? He doesn't do it directly like he did when he walked the earth. He does it indirectly through us. When we faithfully proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's as if Jesus himself is proclaiming the gospel, right? We don't hear just from a preacher. We hear from God himself through the preacher. Does this make sense? That means if you reject the preacher who's faithfully preaching the gospel, you are rejecting Jesus himself, okay? Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We looked at this not too long ago. He recognizes his ministry this way. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You get that? Paul says we are ambassadors. As though God were making an appeal through us. It's exactly what he's doing. It's exactly what he's doing when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is making an appeal through us. He is still preaching peace to those who are near and to those who are far. Jesus is still preaching peace. Look at verse 18. It says, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. This is what we saw earlier. In him we both have our access in the spirit to the Father. In him And in him alone is our way to the Father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then in verses 19 to 22, he illustrates this with three pictures. When he says in verse 19, so then, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens. He's going to get this old picture, new picture. And he's going to give three pictures. One of them is a nation. 
He's going to say, you used to be strangers. You used to be aliens. You used to be just visitors, but now you're citizens. Now you're citizens of one new nation, right? Not several nations living within the same borders, but one new nation. He also says we're part of a family. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, and are of God's household. Not only have we been brought into a nation, we've been brought into a family. And isn't that sweet? To be part of a family together, one family. And then he says, not only that, you're part of a building. You're part of the temple. Temple that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets as they preach Christ. Christ, Jesus himself being the cornerstone that all of it is built on. And we as stones are being fitted together and built up, constantly being built. I wish we could spend more time on all of that. But those are the three pictures. A new nation, a new family, and a new temple. That's what has been brought about in Christ and we have been welcomed into it. Three applications before we get to the Lord's Supper. Number one is this. Real reconciliation is found only in Christ. So it's the most important thing I can say today. It's that real reconciliation is found only in Christ. Real reconciliation to the Father is found only in Christ. You cannot be reconciled to the Father by coming to church. You cannot be reconciled to the Father by taking the Lord's Supper. You cannot be reconciled to the Father by going through baptism. You cannot be reconciled to the Father in any way other than in Christ. Clear enough? And there are people in this room that need to be reconciled to God. People in this room who are far off right now. And you can be brought near only by Christ. People in this room who are dead in their trespasses and sin and can only be made alive together with Christ. People who are lost completely and only Christ can change them. People who only know one side of that cardboard and cannot flip it over because they've not met Christ. And today I would say, run to Jesus, trust in Jesus. Only, only Christ can bring real reconciliation with the Father. And only Christ can bring real reconciliation amongst us. I think a lot of times we try to find common ground in a lot of other places. We try to find common ground in our interests, in our background. We try to find common ground on a whole lot of other things. And what I want to say to you today is this is our common ground. This is our common ground that brings us together. Not the bread and the cup, but the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice for us is what brings us together. It doesn't matter if we don't know anything else about each other. If we know that we are in Christ, we are brothers. We are family. We are together. And we need to remember that today as we pass as we pass this bread and this cup. I want you to look the person you're giving it to in the eye and recognize that you're his brother, that you're his sister. Recognize that there is a real connection there. Only Christ can bring real reconciliation between us and each other. Second application is this. We are a new race, a whole new man a new kind of people. Our identity is not in our nationality. It is not in our education. It is not in our skin color. It is not in our account balance. Our identity is in Christ. And I think about this a lot. Think about the, the kinds of boys that are going to come to my house. Think about the kind, I got, I got three daughters, beautiful girls. And I'm guessing they're going to be boys coming to my house at some point. And it would be really easy for me to look at them and say, do you like the kind of things I like? Do you look like me? Is your family like my family? To ask those kind of questions first, when really the only question, the ultimate question is, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you follow Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ? And as Joe will will almost always throw in there, does he know you? (laughs) Does Jesus know you? That's the important question, right? 
the only thing that matters, the only thing that we will celebrate for all of eternity. That's what matters most, our identity in him, only in him. So I want us to stand together now. And I want us to think about the reconciliation that has been brought to us by Jesus vertically, reconciliation that's been brought to us by Jesus horizontally, what the Lord's Supper means, how we remember his body, how we remember his blood, how his body and blood are the sacrifice for our reconciliation, how that reconciliation brings us together. I want you to prepare your heart if you're a believer for this act. But I know there's some people in here today that aren't believers. And I want to encourage you as we sing a song in just a minute, if you want to come and ask questions about how to be a believer, you want to set up a time to talk about that, man, we'd love to do that. Or maybe you're here and and, and you've just become a believer and you're ready to tell the world about that. We want to help you do that too. Or maybe you want to join First Baptist Church. We'd love to talk to you about that as well. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and then you're going to respond. One way or another, you're going to respond. You're going to say, I don't care anything about this bread and cup. Just get it over with. Or you're going to prepare your heart. You're going to say, yes, I love Jesus and I want to follow him. I want to live for him. Or you're going to say, I don't care. Just get it over with. You're going to respond one way or another. My prayer is that you'll respond in humility, obedience, and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for good news, for the gospel, for reconciliation, for forgiveness of sins. Pray that you'd help us as your people prepare our hearts to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. Help us remember what you've done for us. And help us remember the impact that has on our relationship with each other. Bind us together in the gospel and nothing else. Bind us together in the gospel and nothing else. And God, for folks in here today who are far from you, bring them near. For folks in this room today who are dead, God, I pray that you raise them to life. Folks in this room today who are hopeless, God, I pray that you give them hope. Show them their sin. Show them your love. Show them your sacrifice and give them faith. Give them repentance of sins and change their lives forever. In Christ's name we pray.